0: Nice to see you all. If you'll uh, flip your Bibles open to Titus chapter 2. Will you guys stand with me and we'll read uh, verses 11 through 15 together this morning. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Let me read an excerpt I uh, came across in a book this week. When El Nino's rain deluged Southern California one winter, the potential dangers of mudslides became a real nightmare for one family. While the family was still in their home, a wave of mud tore through the house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out into the night the parents began to search through the darkness for the child. Trampling through the mire that had descended upon their whole neighborhood, they searched, dug, and called for their child throughout the long night without a result. When morning came, a rescuer, a rescuer himself covered in mud, came to the parents with a mud-caked bundle in his arms. The baby, filthy but alive, You know what the mother then did? She clung to her child despite its filth, washed the muck away, and determined to keep the child out of the mud in the future. A fitting story for us. As we get into the latter part of Titus chapter 2, which actually helps with the theme of the whole book, that the Lord has rescued us out of the miry clay, Out of the muck and out of the mud. In that process, he himself covered himself. Uh, He came, became flesh and dwelt among us. But in his rescuing, he then sets us on solid ground and puts a new song in our heart. A song of worship, a life of worship to the Lord. And that, of course, is a quote from Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. A psalm that tells us of the redemption of God. That when people hear the song of our heart after being saved out of the miry pit, that they then will see and believe and fear God and come to know him. And so as we're in chapter 2, last week we looked at verses 1 through 10, which was a whole bunch of imperatives. I don't know if you know what an imperative is. An imperative is basically a lot of do this statements. Do this, do this, do this, do this. It's imperative that you do this. And last week we looked that that there was great command given uh, to older men and to older women and to younger men and to younger women and to bond servants or good application in our day would be employees to do this. And we looked at that last week as great New Year's resolutions to us. But we want to be careful that we do not divorce the imperatives from The motivation and the power behind them. All of those great to do lists for us going into 2019 beg the question how do we do them? How in any way can we do that? I got an email from a gal uh, this week who had listened online to the teaching and she was just like, How can I? Here's me, here's my life, here's my history. How can I be that older woman? and I got to just write back a message about the grace of God towards sinners. And that's what we've got to meditate upon after such a message last week. We tried to close it out by talking like the micro machine salesman, you know, at the end and like reading the last few verses together so that we would get that foundation of grace. And and so many of the commentaries that I've read on this subject, they use the phrase divorce. And of course, we think of divorce as marital divorce and you know, the ending of that covenant between a man or a woman. But, but in theology, it, it just speaks of a separation even of grace and works. That the works that we're called to in Christ Jesus, they cannot be separated uh, from what the grace of God has done for us so that we could even do such things, that we would even want to do such things, that w- we would be motivated and empowered to do such things. It's important to have that foundation. And, and no matter where you're at in the Bible, look for that. You know, a lot of times we just like to read, you know, the commandments and, and try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and give ourselves something to do. But, but we can't do it. We never could do it. If we could do it, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. It's by grace that we're saved, and it's by grace that we will work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who wills and does within us to live according to his good pleasure, the book of Philippians tells us. Graham Goldsworthy, uh, a theologian and a preacher, wrote this, Exhortations without the gospel are legalistic. To say what we should be or do and not link it with a clear exposition of what God has done about our failure to be or do perfectly as he wills, is to reject the grace of God and to lead people to lust after self-help and self-improvement in a way that would call a spade a spade is godless. In other words, If the pastor is simply telling the people what they must do or what they mustn't do without explaining what Christ has done both in his life of perfect righteousness and his making of atonement for all of our sins, then what actually happens is the people begin to think of what they're supposed to do is fix themselves, change themselves, renew themselves, remake themselves and so it becomes a tyranny and eventually leads people to either become a kind of crazy or horribly discouraged or actually tell lots of lies that are clearly not true about themselves so it's important that we not separate the imperatives from the indicatives okay these are great vocab words for all of us today okay Check this out. This is good rule of thumb as you're reading through the Bible and applying it to your life. The redemptive indicatives, okay? Indicatives. Think of an indicator on uh, your truck. You're turning your truck, so you click the little indicator. Blink, 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 blink. It tells people what's going on, okay? The indicator of our redemption, that is that God in Christ Jesus has died for us to save us from our sins and to set us apart for a life for his glory. That great story of the gospel, the redemptive indicative, always leads to moral imperatives, okay? Moral imperatives are, you've got to live this way. Whenever you get to the Bible and you're reading the do this, do that, kind of fly up to 30,000 feet where you're reading And search the before and after verses and say, hey, where is God telling me why I should do this? And where is God telling me how I should do this? Because our favorite thing to do is to take a Bible verse and make it an evangelistic cigarette and just strip it out, drag on it, and toss it away, where we take it away from the meaning that it really genuinely has in the Bible for us, okay? That being said, when we come to verse 11, we're coming to the redemptive indicative. Can you guys say redemptive indicative? Redemptive indicative. Sometimes just saying it, like, takes the fear. Like, I'm not scared now. Okay, I I said it. I looked it in the eye. It growled a little bit. We can move on with life. Okay? And what we get to, verses 11 through 14, is a grace that teaches. We get to a grace that teaches, or a theology, what might be known about God, that leads to ethical living. Theology leads to ethics. Indicatives lead to imperatives. Creed leads to conduct. It's a story of the Bible. And so let's look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men boy if you got a pen or or a highlighter man maybe just underline that word grace such a beautiful beautiful word we've we've done whole sermons on it in the past that just the the phrase itself is so beautiful that that people name their children grace they you know they uh, write songs about grace Um, man when you think of the amazing grace how sweet the sound is the slave trader Uh, Became a Christian and wrote about how could God save a wretch like me. Uh, It's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful living truth. The grace of God. It speaks of the kindness and the goodwill of God. That does the work of salvation. It does the work of pulling us out of that quicksand. Pulling us out of that miry pit. It gives Light to all men. It's been said that no doctrine of Scripture is more precious to mankind than the doctrine of salvation. And no word is more crucial to the doctrine of salvation than that word, grace. Doesn't it just kind of make you want to just sit back and just think about grace? Good, because that's what we're going to be talking about today and in the home groups this week. Let's think about it a little more, looking at some other good cross-references. Let's look at Romans 5, 20. It says, Moreover, where the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans speaks about how the law that was given through Moses, although the law was pure and good and profitable, it was not the means for us to be righteous. Rather, it was the way for us to show we could never be righteous on our own because we just fail and fail and fail. And so where we have the commandments like the Ten Commandments, and those imperatives of scripture, and we see that we fail and we just can't do it, that's when grace enters in. We see that grace abounds in our weakness, and we're able to just fall on grace and rest in grace and let grace reign in our life. Let grace, if you quote it in Romans 5, let grace reign In our lives through righteousness, through righteous living. So isn't grace such a beautiful thing? Because, man, you just start looking at all the thou shalt nots and you're like, but I did. (laughs) But I did. But now what do I do? Oh, well, I'll just, you know, hunker down and try harder for tomorrow. Dang, did it again, you know. But then when grace comes in, it changes us from the inside out and it begins to reign in us. Towards righteousness, as Ephesians one seven says, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. So, just rich grace being given to us, so much so that His own blood redeems us from our sins, and we're going to look at that word redeem in just a little bit in Titus, and then go one chapter past in Ephesians two, verse five even when we were dead in trespasses so that's the bad news today dead in you guys know what trespassing i mean we're in prineville shh, shh, you know what trespassing is i mean i grew up on a ranch where we were chasing down i always say it trespassers you know that's a little bonanza oregon talk for you trespassers you know sit on a ridge with your rifle pointed at the guy while your uncle confronts him you know something good's probably going to happen luckily i'm a bad shot but never shot anyways but you know trespass that's bad right i mean we have erred we've crossed the line all right we're dead in trespasses but he made us alive together with christ that's the good news of grace dead in sin alive in christ i just breathed a little bit better right there thinking about it how about you For by grace you've been saved. And then as you jump down to verse 8. For by grace. It says it again. For by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Grace. Such a beautiful thing. This word grace. It's prefaced with for. For the grace of God. Back in our text. Verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God connects God's commandments and grace it shows that God's commands towards old men old women young men young women and employees it's all rooted in grace and then we're moving into the rest of the chapter here the doctrinal foundation for practical instruction. So here's what should be believed about God so that we can live out uh, righteous living for God. Okay, and I love this quote from Hughes that says, grace, we know, annuls our works as the means of securing or maintaining God's salvation. So we know that as Christians, and this is a beautiful quote. It's a beautiful way to phrase it. Grace annuls us really hunkering down and working hard as the means of, first of all, being saved, forgiveness of sins, going to heaven, knowing God, being reconciled with God. And it also annuls works for maintaining relationship with God. When we're in grace, we know that we're none the better and none the worse based on our behavior today. But we're the better for it because of God's behavior, because of Christ Jesus' behavior. We are seen by God through Christ Jesus as always obedient. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But what that makes us want to do is always be obedient. It's such a wonderful thing. It's such a mind-blowing thing. It's so counter the economy of the world, that it causes us in our hearts to leap for joy, leap with gratitude, leap with thanksgiving, and then have purpose. Okay? So this grace of God that brings salvation, pulls us up out of that miry pit, it has appeared to all men. In two, uh, two times here, we're going to see the word appeared in this section, appeared. And I like it. It's the word epiphany, epiphany. You ever use that in common language? If you have, you've probably heard this. I had an epiphany. And somebody says, what? Did it hurt? Yeah, right. Yeah. Nobody else has heard that. Man, I thought that was common. Okay. So I had an epiphany. All right. And, and that can also mean I was alum- There was illumination that happened, right? And uh, I was like, whoa, did it hurt? Um, the, The grace of God appeared to all men. When men have the grace of God preached to them, there's an epiphany. There's a light that happens. And it appears to all men. And it's interesting because who Paul was writing to, who not only was Titus, who had a ministry in Crete, but also it was known the Cretans were going to read it. They were all Greeks. The Greeks knew this word epiphany uh, to have connotations to the stories of the gods, okay? So he's kind of using their own culture to like share the gospel with them. Uh, And so in the Greek, uh, it was the story of the deos ex machina. And my accent's really bad on that. So there's probably a better way to say it. But in Greek literature, this word uh, "epiphany" functioned as a technical term to describe a hero, and most often in the mythology, it was a god who would break into a helpless situation and rescue someone from danger. And when they began to write plays and dramas, uh, the good old you know Thursday night TV for the Greeks um, about this. God breaking in and rescuing people, they called it Deus Ex Machina. And why would they call it that? Because in the plays, they would have a machine or a crane up above the stage and they would have the hero, you know, wrapped up in rope, you know, and a bunch of guys, you know, pulling in the hero and squeaky, 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 you know, you know? And, and the hero would come in and swoop in and rescue everybody, all right? And so when Paul uses the word epiphany here, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, he's, literally, he's using a picture, squeaky, 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 you know? And here comes Jesus. Men were in the dilemma of sin and death and bondage to it, but God, but the grace of God, but the deus ex machina, all right? But Jesus coming in the flesh, I thought it was a good picture. I don't know, but (laughs) note to self, forget Deus Ex machina. Okay, it's interesting that the Anglican prayer book on Christmas Day has Titus chapter two, verse 11 as one of the first prayer readings on Christmas Day. Kind of cool, you know, being a couple weeks after Christmas here because it's the epiphany. It's the first appearing, the first coming of the Son of God showing this grace. It brought salvation and it appeared to all men. And when you read the Gospel of Matthew and you get to chapter 4, and it says that Jesus, after his temptation, decided to go into Galilee and he went there to Capernaum. It was a fulfillment of prophecy said that the people who have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light and it has dawned upon them. And that's what's happened in the Gospel. People who have dwelt in darkness have had an epiphany. They have seen a great light in Christ Jesus. So often that same prayer book is its tied to, this verse is tied to Malachi chapter four, vi- verse two, that says that the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And that's what's happened in the gospel. The son of righteousness has arised. The people who have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. When the Son of Righteousness came with healing in His wings. And that healing is available here 2,019 years later. Isn't that incredible that His grace extends this far? Is there a person in this room who doesn't need the deus ex machina to come on in, swoop into their life and bring redemption and healing and forgiveness and just save you out of just that that pit that you're in, the day has dawned. And it's dawned to all men. And as we know, with a, mis- a missionary perspective, this isn't speaking so much that, the, that every man who's ever lived has seen and heard the gospel because we know that that's not the case. When you look at the Great Commission, when you look at uh, the missionary plan of God that every nation would hear, And that is the ultimate goal. It hasn't happened yet. So there's still a mission out there that all men would hear. But with Titus, as well as with the other pastoral epistles, when you've got this all men have seen it, it's speaking of the universal scope of the gospel. The tendency is to kind of get bigoted and to say that there are special people that the gospel is for. There are special races, there are special genders, you know, there are are special demographics and income bases that the gospel is profitable for or that is pleasant to share with. And the gospel is really for every man, woman, and child, whatever race you are, whatever amount of income you bring in. That's the beauty of what Galatians says. It's not throwing out the specific created order for genders of male and female. But when it says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free, it's saying, look, the gospel doesn't see that in terms of redeeming people, saving people from their sin and pouring out the inheritance incorruptible for them. That's where the, the, the lines are blurred when the grace of God is being poured out. But as far as created order and role and function... There are specific uh, differences as far as uh, gender roles in that sense. The grace of God abounds to all people. As Luke 3, 6 says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. One day that will happen. That's what we love going to Nepal. God is just, you know, there's so many nations, and especially in the 1040 window, who've yet to ever hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Over a quarter of the world's population has zero effort to get the gospel to them. And the Lord is just, by his grace and through sovereign putting people in the paths of people, he's hooked us up to Nepal, where there's one of the largest unreached people groups and percentages in all of the 1040 window. And so that's why we love Nepal. That's why we pray for Nepal. That's why we go to Nepal because not all flesh has seen the salvation of God there. And God's going before and he's giving people dreams and visions and they're seeing the Lord who's preparing them to have the gospel preached by gringos like us. It's a really exciting thing. But the Great Commission would say at the end of Luke that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Repentance, forgiveness of sins should be preached to all nations, all tribes, tongues, and people groups. As 1 Timothy 2, 4 tells us, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is a universal provision for sin. This is an unlimited provision for sin. Every sin of every person has its answer in Jesus Christ. And anyone who will perish, anyone who will experience the wrath of God upon their life, had to trample over a blood-stained cross to get there. The external testimony of creation damns them just as the rejection of the gospel from the preacher sends them on the path towards hell it was their own willingness to reject their creator god so this beautiful uh, grace of god that has appeared uh, brings salvation it appears to all men equally it's a universal gift and it does something it kind of personifies grace It's a verb in the beginning of verse 12. What does grace do? Teaches. It teaches us something. Grace teaches. It teaches us three things. Number one, to deny. To deny. It disciplines us to deny. As we spend time thinking about the g- grace of God, it reminds me of a, um, a song that I used to sing in high school and sometimes sing now, easily to, easy to memorize on a guitar, so sometimes I play the same things over and over again. But uh, It just said, Oh, the wonder of it all, that love should die for me. Oh, the wonder of it all, through his death comes life for me and into the darkness a precious light has come to a broken and weary world god gave his only son oh the wonder of it all and then the girls go amazing love the wonder of it all Ama-. we're doing it tonight at prayer so get ready okay get ready for the echo girls but the wonder of it all, it is a wonder, the grace of God. It fills us with thanksgiving and gratitude, but also with one more thing determination. As it teaches us something to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to disregard, to refuse to agree with worldly lust, to disown it. To write it out of the will. To repudiate those impious lusts and earthly cravings. So I was raised a Baptist. And the church that I was raised in loved to throw a bunch of rules on the people. Okay? You can't shop here. You can't eat here. You can't watch this or that. And there were just these nice hard and fast rules for us which the book of Romans tells us that just makes us want to do it, you know. <laughs> Anyways, it's a whole other story. Let's go listen to the book of Romans teaching. But what that often does is, like, for me, as I had a wonderfully godly uh, mother and father teaching us, and, you know, we just had, wasn't even a bunch of rules, but, but my group of friends, as I graduated high school and went to college, we all kind of came out of similar upbringings, where rules were put on us. And then we began to hear about this thing called grace. And so we kind of went from one area of life where it was like rules on everything to like no rules on anything, you know? And I just remember hanging out with my friends from Bible college and they're so stoked about grace that grace became a license for sin for them. And I just remember these statements, you know, where, where guys would uh drink too much and get drunk and as we would confront them they'd just be like grace bro grace you know and you're like oh yeah i guess yeah i guess grace you know or like you know in your relationship with a girl just like going too far in physical uh touch with them and just like ah grace and grace and and we would just hear this grace being thrown around but being thrown around unbiblically I mean, read the book of Romans where it's like, hey, should we continue to sin so that grace could abound? It's like, certainly not. How can we who've died to sin live any longer in it? And so it's just, it's a thing that can happen with us where we, well, then we can bounce right back over here and just start putting a bunch of trips on each other with rules again. And so it's so important to be in the word and to be meditating upon true grace because true grace is will motivate us and move us towards godly living without hard and fast rules um, being placed upon our lives we have the conviction of the holy spirit in us and with the conviction of the spirit who who preaches grace to us daily grace means we say no to sin that's what grace does grace isn't a license to sin where we say ah grace man Grace is something that causes us to say, whoa, grace, he is sure worth a lot more than where my licentiousness is taking me right now. I at least need to come back and meditate on these things and say, wow, what is grace moving me to do? It teaches me to deny ungodliness or misconduct. One commentator uses the term godliness, which we'll see later in its positive sense godliness as reverence manifested in action so if living a godly life is living a life that is just so in the fear of the lord and reverence for him and so it shows itself in the way we live and behave then what is ungodliness ungodliness is no fear of god no reverence for god showing itself in the way we behave Chappelle and Hughes say there's no question that sexual compulsions are included in this term, worldly lusts, but there's also concern about anger, hatred, ambition, and other urges that result in uncontrolled speech or behavior. I mean, we live in a culture that says no to nothing, right? We love to satisfy our fleshly cravings. But grace teaches us how and when to say no. So we say no, we deny, but we also live. We also live in a positive sense. We live soberly, righteously, and godly now in this present age, 2019. We have self-control. We're moderate. We're different than this present world system. And we say yes to godly living. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. It's a very deep passage when you really start studying it. But it tells us that God foreknew us as Christians. He foreknew us. Before we were created, before the foundations of the world, he foreknew us. And he predestined us. Predestined us. To be conformed to the image of his son. From the beginning of the world, he had this plan for us to be conformed to be like Jesus. To live a righteous, sober, and godly life in this present age. And it's all part of the plan of salvation that not only begins with us being saved and born again, but also with us continually being saved am saved and one day will be saved it's the different tenses of salvation and so this verse goes on to say so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he predestined these he also called whom he called these he justified and whom he justified these he also glorified so we're justified from our sins by jesus just as if i'd never sinned we're called were sanctified to be conformed into the image of his son and were glorified presently and futurely yes futurely in the future spurgeon said wherever the grace of god comes effectually it makes the loose liver deny the desires of the flesh it causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his greediness It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idler to diligence. And it sobers the wanton mind which cared only for the frivolities of life. Not only do we leave these lusts, but we deny them. Verse 13 of our text, Titus 2 says, not only do we deny and not only do we live, but we look. Grace teaches us to look. To look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are looking forward to that day. How great, I don't know if Adam read ahead in the book of Titus as we sang, Come, Lord Jesus, come. But we look ahead to his glorious appearing, which is also the word epiphany. Okay? And so, sandwiched between two epiphanies, the two comings of Jesus, Our lives being consecrated, lives that are being sanctified, lives that are being taught by grace, grace that teaches us to deny sin and to live for righteousness and to look for the second coming, to the second epiphany, the happy hope of God and his glorious appearing. And how wonderful, if you've got your pen, you might underline that Jesus is called God in this verse. He is our great God and he is our great savior. Part of the mystery of the Trinity is that there is one God, but three persons, all right? It's a great deep study to do, and it's a mystery still. You'll still have a little bit of a headache at the end of studying it. But that God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. I mean, that's like, there's a lot of different combinations there. But basically, they are distinct in personality And yet they are unified in value, all right? And here we have Jesus, our God, Jesus, our Savior, and he will come back. And we look for that, we long for that, and we love that. But you know, more than the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ being some sort of pet doctrine that we should get in fights with at people at various conferences or coffee tables, you know, the rapture of the church is something that should lead us towards godly living is 1 John at the end of chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 tells us that when he appears, we would not be ashamed at his coming. And he who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So people who have this pet doctrine about eschatology, and I love to study eschatology, and I look for Jesus' coming, man, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. But if it doesn't doesn't lead to a, a changed life in me, then I've missed the boat. I've just got a nice pet thing that I like to argue with people about, okay? And so there's a beautiful thing about, you know, man, you might have a different position on that, but I still love you. And uh, I think either way, we should all be looking up and waiting for Jesus to come, all right? Um, and so the discipline of grace has three results, denying, living, and looking. You've got those three words right in front of you, don't you? You can underline them and whatever it is that you wanna do. But this great God and Savior who's going to be appearing, look at what He did. Look at verse 14. He gave Himself for us. He gave Himself for us. How do you think of yourself when you think of yourself? How do you judge the value of yourself and your worth? The same way that you judge the value of a commodity or a product how much is someone willing to pay for it how much was God our Savior willing to pay for you his own precious blood he gave himself he gave himself to redeem us that verb redeem literally means to release someone on receipt of a ransom price being paid And it takes us back to the slave trade it takes us there on the on the auction block where the man or the woman or the child is being purchased for slavery they are in bondage they have no hope in this world read the book 12 years a slave man you will completely be rocked on what slaves went through and as you find the auction block scene and children being ripped from their parents and being sold to different markets and and into lives of just bondage and affliction you've got that one hero that comes in with a bag full of money and he buys that perfect perfect or that person off the auction block and gives them their freedom those are wonderful stories aren't they we've heard them in various ways and that is what jesus has done not with the blood of bulls and goats this simply covers over our sins, but with his own precious blood, he's bought us to himself. He's paid the ransom. That language ransom, it's used in the gospels in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I don't think I've ever seen the movie. But I remember the cover in VHS, you know, or maybe DVD in the early days of Mel Gibson's movie Ransom. You know, I don't think I've ever seen that one. But I do remember the preview. What does he do? Give me back my son! In classic Mel Gibson style. And just with reckless abandon, he goes out for the rescue. I, again, haven't seen the movie, but the preview. I think he even jumps over the hood of a car. You know, it goes, you know. Again, enter him in, right? Squeaky, squeaky, squeaky. Here he comes to rescue us. Give me back my sons. I'm going to pay the ransom price. The receipt has been given and we are rescued. In the words of Ellis J. Crum, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. So that, why did he do this? See, I mean, word that is pretty important. There's a purpose behind redemption so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. So there's a cause and there's a result of redemption so that he could liberate us from lawlessness. Lawlessness speaks of uh, living a life of breaking the law. I'm so glad that we're just above that. You know, that's not us, right? Okay, confession time. Brother in law shows up to town this week with special fireworks for New Year's Eve, right? What's the harm? We've all been out there, right? Jake, don't listen. Plug your ears. Okay. Okay. We've all been out there, Fourth of July. We're all doing the little sparklers and the little snakes that poo out a little ash, you know? Sorry, but that's all I can think of. You know? And you're the schmuck there with the little, and then there's the guy down the street that's like, boom, baby, yeah, and you're like, okay, that is so wrong, you know, till brother-in-law shows up New Year's Eve with like 11 big bangers from Washington, all right, what's the harm, show the kids New Year's Eve, everybody does it, still not listening, kick it. You know, boom, 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 boom. Probably in the 15 minute period. Boom, 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 boom. Kids are And we go and we clean it all up. We go inside. About 20 minutes later, Lindsay's putting Tatum to bed. Oh, there's a police officer outside. (laughs) Looking through our garbage can. You know, and we're all sitting there like, oh, well, you know, we're done and we're inside and it's been enough time. Like, what's the big deal? You'll notice my neighbors, the brats aren't here today. So um, anyways, you know, ding dong, you know, and, and he, he'll go and open the door. And here is this Romans 13, beautiful minister of the gospel of God as Romans, you know, 13 says He's a minister of God. And if you don't want to be afraid, then don't do anything bad. All right. And so here she is and we step outside and just immediately she informs us that we're being recorded, you know. Well, that's good to know, you know. <laughs> Seems to be the problem, officer. You know? <laughs> and there was no fun and games with this gal. There was no, like, you never do it, it's cool. You know, it, it was like rebuke. Hard, hard. Of course, I said they were my brother-in-laws and I tried to tell them <laughs> You know, and then as she saw that we were respectful and repentant, you know, she smiled and was getting and left. And and then about five minutes later, I get a text from Sandy Kerbo. <laughs> hey, we just installed the uh, the radio walkie, police walkie-talkie app <laughs> on our phones. You know, we heard your name over the airwaves and. Uh, You know, you need us to bring the bail money or, you know, some Christmas cookies, you know. And then, you know, Lee Romaine, Jamie's dad. Hey, heard over the, you know. uh, Just out in the community representing Jesus, everybody, you know. Had not been meditating on the grace of God that day to deny ungodliness and to live a lawless or lawful life, I should say. that's a great conversation to have with your kids and sandy and everybody but he came to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself his own peculiar people i like that peculiar people and there's some of us that are more peculiar than others okay but we're all special peculiar a special people his own special possession that he has bought, his own crowd, his own motley crew who are zealous for good works. The grace of God moves us and teaches us and makes us zealously adherent to good works. The language speaks of enthusiastic for good works, almost to a nationalistic sense for the beautiful. We want to see these things done for the glory of God. Not something we have to do, but something we get to do. Uh, worship team, why don't you come on up? And I liked what I read from Brian Chappelle and Arkent Hughes this week. It says, the dynamic of ha- You can come on up, I really will end. Okay. <laughs> the dynamic of having the love of God create an intolerance for sin is what the puritans called the power of new affections what will ultimately make us holy is not willpower or guilt nor an inspiring message but deep apprehension of the mercy of god in christ the resultant love for god drives out and replaces our natural love for sin The Puritans taught this truth with the image of the oak tree, a variety of of trees whose leaves, though they were dead, stuck to their branches throughout the winter. What eventually forced the leaves from the tree was not the abuse of the cold or the beating of the wind, but the new life of springtime welling up within the branches and forcing out what was dead in a similar way though we are god's people yet there cling to us affections for evil that we must confess and allow god's grace to push out our final verse in the chapter to me and to you is to speak these things exhort these things and rebuke with all authority Let no one despise you. Let's pray.